And again, good morning to you, and we're excited to get into God's Word. You have an outline that looks exactly like the one that I have in my hand. If you received a bulletin here this morning, we encourage you to use that because I believe it helps to follow along. I know that my mind drifts even when I'm speaking up here, but I know that yours would drift as well. And so we want to be a student of God's Word. Let me read the beautiful text that we have for us and set it up. It's all about true life and real love, and we're in the process of learning what true life is and how real love is expressed. As we get into 1 John 2, verses 3 through 11, here's what God says to us through this wonderful epistle. The Apostle John wrote this. He wrote the Gospel of John, three letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the beautiful book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible. And he says this to us about this true life and the real love that we should express. A lot of this is pretty straightforward. You don't need someone to tell you what it means, but we're going to do it anyways. In 1 John 2, 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. John is, he's just bold. He's not worried about somebody being offended and walking away. I just love this guy. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Beloved, I am now, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment. It was in the Old Testament, it's also going to be in the New Testament. Uh, That uh, you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment that Jesus reaffirmed, as we will see, which is true in Christ and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so there is a lot of light and darkness theme that John gives to us and there's confusion. He's writing to a church in the area of Ephesus and the surrounding churches in the area that we today call Turkey. They referred to it as Asia Minor in those days. They are, many of them, the seven churches of Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And the first thing that I want us to emphasize is this. Albert Muller is a, an outstanding, well-respected, evangelical, conservative Christian who speaks truth to the world about what we believe. He is sort of like the Apostle John as he writes these things. Here is one of the things that Albert Moeller has written. He has a blog. He's he's, uh, well regarded in terms of uh, uh, some of the evangelical beliefs. He says, there is a rampant confusion on what is compatible with Christianity, that we don't really have a good grounding in what we really believe. For example, 26% find spiritual energy in physical things. Now, it's a battery. I get that. But beyond that, hard to understand. 25% believe in astrology consistent with Christianity. 24% say people will be reborn in this world again and again. Reincarnation. 23% say yoga is a spiritual practice. Julia Jarvis is a classmate of Albert Moeller in seminary. And he reflects on something she said, even coming out of the same basis of operation of thinking that he had. She writes, My mother feared for years that I was no longer saved, but just two days before she died, she had an epiphany. 
She said she was told in a spiritual experience to put aside all religious and political differences and just love each other. That was her blessing to me, and that's what I'm doing. You see, what she is saying is, I need to put aside the fact that I may believe differently than you believe. It just doesn't matter as long as we love each other. What John is writing about is true life, but real love, and this wants to wash that away. We now have a candidate, Hillary Clinton, not to get all political on you, but uh, she said it, so I take her at her word. She said, we have to get rid of our our religious beliefs. We have to change what we believe so we can get along. That same kind of mindset. It doesn't matter what you believe. You need to change it so you are one with everyone else. It's this kind of whitewashing of truth. 47 and 59% of Americans have changed religions at least once. Sort of like choosing a grocery store or a restaurant to eat in. The top reasons for most, their spiritual needs weren't being met or they liked another faith more or change religious or moral beliefs. It just doesn't matter what you believe. Just find one that suits you and just go for it. If you don't like it, change. Change what you believe. The percentage of people who call themselves Christian have dropped more than 11% a generation. So many people declined in religious label that nuns, those who don't believe anything, don't go to church, now are 15% of the USA, are the third largest quote-unquote religious group after Catholics and Baptists. And so there is a growing population of disbelief, non-belief, the so-called, they are now called the nuns. Uh, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, those who have nothing. And it's that kind of loss of biblical, theological, undergirding belief system that is a very sand-filled foundation upon which to build one's life. Despite Americans' overwhelming allegiance to someone they call God, in Pew's 2008 U.S. Religious Landscape Survey, 70% said many religions can lead to eternal life. 68% said there's more than one true way to interpret the teachings of my religion. And it's this multiple way of thinking about God, defining Him differently. Then Moeller sums up. In short... We believe our own experiences are authentic and no authority can say otherwise. What I feel, what I experience is true for me, even if it's not true for you. And it's this kind of shady, kind of uh, like jello that hasn't really set mindset that is dangerous. John's speaking into the people of Ephesus about that. He says there's antichrist coming. There are people who believe differently than you. There are people that believe that Jesus wasn't a man. And so there's this kind of this changing of belief systems and this undermining of what Jesus laid down when he gave his life for us. That is what he wants to address. So we want to talk about that. We want to talk about two things. How we affirm the faith that we have, true faith, and then secondly, how we act if we have true faith. What does that look like? John's pretty black and white on this thing. He's pretty dark and light on this thing, as we will see as we go through it. First thing that he wants us to know to affirm our faith is that you know that you know you have Jesus. You, you know that. He says in 1 John 2, 3, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. He says, I want you to know that you know Him. He says know, which is the Greek word I put on the screen. doesn't mean anything necessarily, but it's the word gnosko. The reason I put it on the screen is because there is this belief system called Gnosticism that's based upon gnosko. And so John uses this word know a lot. He's sort of rubbing it into the Ephesians, the people of Ephesus, of Turkey today. He's rubbing it in that I want you to know that you can know because the Gnostics don't 
believe that you can really know that what I am saying is true. And so you see a little bit of what they would have seen when they read this for the first time or had it given to them by verbal uh, comment. And Gnosticism says, I don't believe that Jesus was ever human flesh. Gnosticism is a belief that human flesh is unimportant. It's the spiritual side, not the fleshly side. And so if my material body is unimportant, I can do anything I want with it and it doesn't matter. And it sort of promoted this sort of a hedonistic way of living. And they said Jesus couldn't be human flesh because material things are unimportant. So this undermining of the belief system says, but I want you to know that you can know this. I remember talking to a man who came from another faith and I said, did, did you realize that you can actually know that the day you die, you would go to heaven? And he said to me, there is, he, he turned his back and literally walked away in disgust that I could ever declare that you could know that you would go to heaven the day you die. He was just appalled that anybody would say that because he's part of a belief system that says that's sinful to ever think that you could actually know something like that. No, we work hard to somehow maybe achieve that, but we never really know. John says those with true faith, they know. They have this knowledge. They have this working knowledge in their lives. That's why it says in 1 John 5, 13, these things I've written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know those things. How do we affirm our faith? Because we know that we have it. And it's sort of an experiential but biblical truth as well. We keep His commandments. That's how we know we have that faith. We affirm our faith because we walk in obedience to what He says. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. And so He's pretty black and white about that. We've got a lot of people sitting on the fence about faith. Sort of living it, sort of not living it. Sort of in the faith, sort of outside the faith. Sort of living the way people would live who don't know Jesus and then occasionally living like people who do live and know Jesus. And John says, man, I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to let you know that either you're walking in obedience to what God says or you're not. And if you're not walking in obedience to the commands of God, then you're a liar if you say you know Him. You can't know someone and then live differently than the one that you say you know. You know, this being Father's Day, let me illustrate. I've shared some of this with some of you. When Jessica, our oldest daughter, was, I think she was about three years old. So we're going back just, what, about five years ago. <laughs> and she was three. We went to a store. Uh, it's way back when we lived in Corona. And I went to a store. It was kind of like a Home Depot. As we went to that store, I was looking for certain things, and I had to bring her along. Not that I had to bring her along. It was a thrill as a dad to bring a little three-year-old in the Home Depot. <laughs> and so I'm looking for whatever I'm looking for, and I sort of forget that I've got the little three-year-old Jessica with me, this little sweet, innocent girl she was at that time. And still is. And so... Uh, as I was observing where I was looking on the walls and the shelves, I suddenly looked around and realized she's not here anymore. And I looked down the aisles, I didn't see her. I looked down that aisle, I didn't see her. I looked all over, I couldn't see her. And if you're a dad or a mom 
and you've ever had that moment where you're in a public place, small store, and you look and you don't see your child, there is this sense of panic that begins to overtake you. And so I looked all around and could not find her anywhere. I was getting ready to scream, lock all the doors, the child is lost. And then I heard this series of bangs. It sounded like a whole bunch of, like a machine gun going up. Boom, 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 boom. And so I headed to the sound to the, of the noise. And there was Jessica standing in front of what used to be these metal, like erector set shelves you put in your garage. They're about 10 feet high. And they were lined up like dominoes. And she pushed the first one, and they all fell down like dominoes right afterwards. Now, I'm her father. Imagine if I said, yeah, that's my daughter. I'm her father. And when I looked around and didn't find Jessica anywhere, I just continued to shop. I never changed. Never altered what I was going to do. I just continued to shop for the next half hour. Yeah, she's my daughter, but I never stopped to look for her. Would you say that I'm a good father? No. Thank you for not blurting it out. But I could read your minds. I would be a terrible father. And imagine I went over there and found her, and there she was standing in front of the erector set of crushed metal, and just looked at, oh, that's, that's too bad, and just walked away and just left her standing there. And she had to pay for all that stuff on her own. I wouldn't be a very good father then either. There are some people who claim that God is their father, and they think they can act any way they want, but you never see them acting in obedience to the commands of the Father. And you've got to wonder, are you really his kid? Now the thing about Jessica that struck me in that situation, she was, she was missing from me for maybe up to ten minutes and I didn't know where she was. But here's the thing that, that happens. For ten minutes, Jessica was wandering on her own as a three-year-old in this big construction department store, pushing over things that she shouldn't push. And she had, and here's the thing, she had no idea that she was lost. She didn't know. She just living life, enjoying pushing things and breaking things. But she was oblivious to the damage that she was doing. She could care less to the panic that she created in me. Not to put it all on her, but she's the one who wandered away. But... Uh, <laughs> But it was that sense that she had no awareness of the lostness of her life and the hurt to her father that she was gone. There are those who are God's children who are lost, who have wandered away, who are not in obedience, who aren't modeling the life, who aren't obeying the commands. And they're lost. And the Father in heaven, he probably feels something the way I felt that day. And I said, didn't she know what she's doing, how hurtful that is to me? We as God's children, there are so many who are lost and don't know they're lost. But I'll tell you one thing. As a father of that day, 
As a father, I would do nothing to stop. No one could stop me and nothing could stop me from seeking my lost little girl. And I'm here to declare to you that if you are lost, and you probably don't know you're lost, but you know you're not obeying the commands of God, there's nothing the Father in heaven will do. There's nothing that will stop him. There was nothing that will prevent him from hunting you down and grabbing hold of your hand and saying, let's go, to, let's go together. Let me love you. Let me embrace you. Because when I found Jessica and I gave her a hug, oh my goodness, what a relief. I said, let's get out of here. <laughs> I mean, we're paying these people good money to fix these things. Uh, and we did. We, did, we left. There's other parts of that story, but I don't have time. Anyways, I hope you see what I'm saying. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The one who says, I know the Father, but does not obey the Father is a liar. The father that says that they love their child, but never look for their child who is strayed away. What kind of father is that? And so words and deeds better match up. If I say I love my Father in heaven, I do the Father's will. If I say I'm a good father, but I never pay attention to my daughter or my son, what kind of father is that? So let the words and the deeds match up to affirm our faith. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus also said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. I may be lost, but the Father loves me and He seeks me and I want to show that I love Him. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love Him and disclose myself to Him. There is a relationship changing when I am His child. I alter the way I live. How we affirm our faith is thirdly, the love of the God is being perfected in us. 1 John 2, 5 says, But whoever keeps His word in Him, the love of God, has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. There's some ambiguity there. Is it my love for God is being perfected or God's love for me is being perfected? I think he leaves it sort of ambiguous, like could go either way because it could go either way. That I love him and he love for me and, and there's something that compresses into my life. I wrote to you in my email and I'll share it here in case you didn't see it or read it or even open it. If you didn't, I'd like to know why. We had a woman in our church that came to me in that same church in Corona. And she came to me the day that she wanted to join, become a member. And she said, do you mind if I become a member of your church? I said, absolutely, I'd love to have you become a member of our church. And then she said, but you don't know how many problems I have. And once you learn about my problems, I'm afraid that you won't allow me to become a member of your church. I figured, well, we all got problems. Come on, how bad can it be? And so I said, come on in. Of course, I'm glad to have you join our church. And, and she joined our church, and she was with us uh, until we left for about eight years or so. Like by the time she had come and we had left. And she had a boatload of problems. One, for example, is that they were foster parents and took in a child who had been molested by their biological parent. And they took her in, and this woman's husband then molested that little foster baby. Now, you don't get any lower than that in my book. 
and walk with her during that journey of legal stuff. Her husband was put away in prison for three years. It was just awful. It was just, uh, it just seems like if anybody sort of woke up on the wrong side of a, the proverbial bed of life, it was this woman. And yet she was a sweetheart throughout all this. And I remember our church surrounding them and loving them and caring for them. I thought about this verse. When I thought about this verse, I thought about her. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. When God is in me, his love is being perfected even to the imperfect within us. And the last day when they were giving us the farewell to leave our church there, we were going to Lodi. It's when we left to go to Livable, Lovable Lodi. Some of you have heard of me speak of Livable, Lovable Lodi. And you know that farewell where everybody comes out and tells you how great you are and you're wondering, then why am I leaving? I didn't know you liked me so much. It's one of those things. And she came up to me. This woman came up to me. And she said, do you remember the first day I came to our church? And I said, I sure remember that. Do you remember the question I asked you? Yeah, I remember the question you asked me. She said, what was it? <laughs> oh, I hate that. But I said, yeah, I, I think I do remember. You said, I hope you never regret that I've joined your church. Do you remember me saying that? And I said, I do remember you saying that. And then she says, Pastor Dave, let me ask you another question. What's that? Have you ever regretted that I've joined your church because of all my problems? And you've got to swallow deep. Because occasionally some people bother. Even as holy as pastors are, we, we, we are people too, you know? But I looked at her. I said to her, by the grace of God, we have always loved you and we've always been glad you've come to our church. And the reason the church is here is for people like you. Because we're all imperfect people. And I'm so grateful that God used those early days of my ministry and life to bring people like her. And there's so many other stories like her that we encountered that first 10 years of ministry that we didn't have a clue as to what to do. Because I think about the, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. I want his love to be perfected in me so that it affirms the fact that I have true faith. Because fake faith runs in the face of problems. True faith stands fast and God's love continues to perfect us. That's what we want at Calvary. You know why we've closed off the back rows there? Because we want people to come together more than we've even been doing before. True God, true love is being perfected. And then finally, how we affirm our faith is that we abide in Christ to live like Christ. Christ doesn't want us to sort of struggle on our own. He doesn't want us to love women like the woman that I just talked about on our own. He doesn't want us to sort of struggle a little bit more because I don't really love her, but I'll try to pretend like I'd love her. God, God doesn't want that kind of phony, fake faith. But he says, the one who abides, says he abides in him, in Jesus, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Just, just abide in Christ, be close to Christ, be intimate with Christ. Let Jesus be the center of your soul as you spend time in His Word and in prayer and in devotion and other people who are part of the body of Jesus. Let all the body of Christ come around you so that He is abiding in you because He gives you capacity. 
Now, John, who wrote 1 John, also wrote the Gospel of John. And John loves this word abide. He loves this concept of us being abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, close to Christ, intimate with Christ. So he wrote this that Jesus said way back before he died on the cross. The week of his death, Jesus said this. And John quotes him. Notice how often he says abide. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus said. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So apart from Jesus, I can't love people like the woman I just told you about. And neither can you. He, he gives us capacity to love people that we can't love otherwise. Because He houses me bearing fruit because of His nourishment in my life. And so He wants me to abide in Him so I have capacity to do the unlovable thing lovingly. And those people that come into our lives that are so hard to be with, He gives us capacity to love them beyond what we could do in our own strength. Because on my own strength, apart from Him, I can do nothing. I can't do it. One of the ways He does that, I love this concept. I just want to share this with you. We looked at this many years ago. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, that same passage, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear fruit. Jesus does all that He can to help us to bear fruit. So He does a lot of things, and He says He takes it away. What does that mean to take away? The word Greek word for take away means to raise up, to lift, to take upon oneself, to carry what has been raised, to bear or to carry it. And I put it in this way in the first John language, he lifts the branch from darkness to light. The word take away means to raise or to lift up. Now having lived in Lodi, I learned something about grapes and wines and how they harvest the crop. Here is a bunch of grapevines and you notice that the grapevine is on the ground. And so that on-the-ground vine is going to be soaking in every little critter that wanders around that could destroy the crop. And on the ground, it can get the mildew and it can get the mold. And so what a good farmer does is he takes it away. He lifts it up. And so in Lodi, you drive all around Lodi and all you see are vineyards where their lines are now no longer draped on the ground, but they've been lifted up on the wires that string from vine to vine. You know what Jesus does? He wants to lift us into the light. Lift us up into the light of Christ so that I have opportunity to bear fruit for Him because I'm abiding in His light. I'm not drooping all over the ground in the darkness and the filth of this world. So we lift ourselves into the light of Christ to give us capacity to do what we can't do in our own human strength. That's how I affirm my faith. I know that I know Him. I have this capacity to obey Him. I have this ability to love for Him. I have this uh, wonderful relationship of abiding in Him. And suddenly, I've got ability that I never thought I would have. And it changes me. And so when He changes me, I act differently. Here is from affirming our faith to acting out in our faith. When we act out in our faith, it causes this. We reveal a growth in both words and deeds by moving from darkness into the light. There is a change that is taking place. I'm going from darkness to light. There is a manifest revelation of my journey with God that is being seen and evident to those around me. There are changes going on. And he wants to reveal that. First John 2, 8, 9 says, On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And now he's going to go and step on our toes because he's moving us from darkness to light. And it begins to talk about relationships. The first part is all about my vertical with God. Now he's going to talk about my horizontal with one another. And what he wants us to know is this. We need to love people to help others avoid failure. We love people in a very miraculous and amazing way. 1 John 2.10 says, The one who loves his brother abides in that light. When Jesus lifts us up like the vine branches into the light of the Son of Jesus Christ, then his light shines in me and there's no cause of stumbling. I don't cause people to stumble or fail in their relationships. It's like in marriage. You know, it's on my mind. Um, I'm doing a wedding this afternoon down by the beach. And so here's this young couple that's getting married this afternoon. And one of the things I'm going to tell that young couple who are young and cute and bright and love Jesus is that when you get married, one of the secrets to marriage is flexibility. You know how before you just work out, you're supposed to flex and stretch to get the muscles so they don't tear? Well, marriage is just a bunch of flexible people. We've been married for 41 years, Joy and I have, and it's all about flexibility. And I'm talking about spiritual things. And it's that capacity to say, you know what, I've got to change in order to stay with this person. I don't want her to change. I need to change so that I can continue to love in ways that are meaningful. I, had a, I did a wedding some time ago now, and this couple didn't get that concept. So I married them. We did the little ceremony, little backyard thing that people love to do these days. So we did a little backyard wedding and everybody was there and the big reception and the, all the fun stuff that was going on. So I'm driving home from the wedding. And I'm driving home, they call me. I said, yes. I said, have you mailed the wedding certificate yet? I said, well, no, I, I still have it with me. I'm still on my way home. We've changed our mind. Tear it up. We don't want to stay married. Well, that's the, that's the shortest wedding marriage that I've ever been part of. I don't know about you. I mean, they were, they were married for all of like, like 45 minutes. That tells me they weren't committed, you know, because they're not willing to change, not really to adapt. They're not willing to reorient themselves to a new relationship. And for you and I, those of us who are married, it changes us. We change so that we can love one another. It means we alter. If I say I love someone so that I marry someone, it doesn't mean 45 minutes later I want to go off and do my own thing. When Joy and I get married, it doesn't mean that, you know, Joy, why don't you get that apartment down there and I'll get this apartment over here. And occasionally we can visit each other. We didn't do that. I remember even when my with my dad, I said, you know, I've saved up, after we were married, I saved up enough money, I'm going to buy myself some stereo. And I said, oh, really, you have the money? He said, yeah, I have my own money. And my dad, very quickly, this is like within uh, the first year of our marriage, he set me straight on that. (laughs) And so ever since then, we have a joint account. You change, right? Your finances change, suddenly it becomes us. You change where you live. You change how you relate to each other. Imagine what it would be, be like if, you know, every night when we have dinner, sometimes we eat in the patio, sometimes we eat in the, in, the, uh, in the dining room, and 
What if I said, Joey, why don't you eat in the patio? I'll eat in the dining room tonight. If you saw us doing that regularly, would you think there's something wrong with our marriage? You, you ought to think that. And you wouldn't be judgmental. You'd be true. We change how we do business in the simplest ways. I love what Jesus said in John 13. He says, this is again, this, this upper room. He's days away from crucifixion. Judas is in the room. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and began to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. And he washed Judas's feet. Just amazing. How do you wash the feet of the man who betrays you? And then he goes on to give us this. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I love you. That you also love one another. By this will men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And he says, so start washing each other's feet. Love them. I had a good illustration of that in my life just at the last missions conference here a few months ago. We were up in Idlewild with all the missionaries. And Matt Dunn had this, what he thought was a great idea. And that was to partner up with another missionary. And I partnered up with Orrin West. He says, now we're going to have you wash each other's feet. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a germaphobe. And uh, even after church, after I shake everybody's hands, I go up there and wash them uh, because I'm just that kind of a crazy guy. And so to sit down before Orrin West, and I love Orrin West. He's a godly, sainted man. He's a wonderful man. And when I saw Warren West take off his shoes and he took off his socks and I looked at those feet, he's got a lot of miles on those feet. <laughs> and I'm going to take those feet in my hands and I'm going to take that water and that towel and wash them. And I did. But I want to confess to you my heart wasn't in it. <laughs> but I did it. But I had a little little inkling. I thought, what if Orrin West is a godly, sainted man, but what if I was washing the feet of a man who had told me he hates me, and he denied me, and he betrayed me, and he says, I'm going to make sure you die. Would you wash that man's feet? I don't know if I could, but Jesus did. And he says, so go and love those people. It's easy to wash the feet of people who are you know, my girls were little, we'd wash their feet, and it was never thought, never thought a thing of it as we bathed them. Those you love, it's easy to love, but those like Jesus loving Judas, oh my goodness, that's what Jesus is saying. I want you to prove that you're my child by acting differently, and that means loving more, even those you want to hate, or those who say they hate you. Prove yourself as my child. And then finally, we recognize the destructive nature of that hatred. So Jesus says, I want you to turn from it. John says that as well. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's how John really penetrates this horrid condition of hatred. He doesn't want us to live there. When we've got an axe to grind and someone's hurt us or offended us or damaged us, and I know that there are so many on this Father's Day, there are many of us in this room who have had a father that we probably struggle to not hate. Because I know it's not right. I know that's not. But if you knew what he had done to me, 
I get that. So he invites us into this life of abiding in Christ and experiencing Christ and the love of God being perfected in us to give us capacity to love those that we don't feel we can love anymore. He doesn't want us to live in hate. Hate, as I put it this way, hate causes us to lose hope. It's in the darkness. Hate prevents growth and purpose in life. I walk in the darkness and does not know where he is going. Hate blinds us to the truth. I can't grow. If you're hating someone, you can't grow. That's why I was amazingly blessed because I don't know if I could do that. Here's yesterday's paper. And that horrible thing that happened in Charleston, South Carolina, where that church where nine people were massacred in a prayer meeting. I mean, it's awful anytime. And these family members came to the bond hearing. And in South Carolina, you can speak to the culprit who did these terrible things. And these families, you may have heard, but two quotes on here. A one family member who, whose family member was killed, a relative was killed, and she, he says, I forgive you. My family forgives you. We would like you to take the opportunity to repent. Do that and you'll be better off than you are right now. And then Elena Simmons, whose grandfather was murdered, she said, although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof. They lived in love and their legacies will live in love so hate won't win. And I just want to thank the court for making sure that hate doesn't win. Could you say that to a man that slaughtered your family, I don't know whether I, I hope I have that in me to do that. And it's what John is talking about. Here we have a living illustration of these sainted people and the family members and that God bless that pastor for building into his congregation a concept that John speaks to in this moment. That this pastor that had given his heart and life to this congregation, had poured God's truth so they, in the biggest test of their lives, they pass with glory by loving those that most people want to hate. And that, that goes as a memorial to that pastor and the leadership and the modeling that he gave to those sainted people that gathered on Wednesday night to pray. But let me close with this. I included it in my email, and again, not everybody reads those, but I love this for a Father's Day especially. I found this from Paul Tripp in his book, Forever, Why You Can't Live Without It. Paul Tripp had a teenage son, and as those of us who have our children have gone through the teenage years and are beyond the teenage years, and I say praise God, hallelujah. <laughs> and for those of you who are still looking forward to it, I'll pray for you. But as that son was in his teen years, one day he said, I'm going to spend the night at my friend's house. And dad, Paul, said, okay. And then it turns out that he wasn't at his friend's house. He was somewhere else. And so this son, this teenage son, lied to his dad. And the mom of the son that was supposed to be, that he was supposed to be with, confessed to this father that their son was not with him. And then he realized that his son had deceived him. And it says, And I went to my bedroom to pray for God's help, and it hit me. 
that because of his love, God had already begun to work a rescue in my son's life. God was the one who pressed in on the conscience of my son's friend, causing him to confess to his mom that he wasn't there. God was the one who gave her the courage to make that difficult call to me. And God was the one giving me time to get hold of myself before my son came home. Now, rather than wanting to rip into my son, I wanted to be part of what this God of grace was doing in this moment of rebellion, deception, hurt, and disappointment. And so he gave his son a couple of hours after he got home to sort of regroup. And then Paul went into his son and talked to him. And he said, Did you ever think about how much God loves you? Paul said to his son. Sometimes he answered. Do you ever think how much God's grace operates in your life every day? His son looked up but didn't speak. Do you know how much God's grace was working in your life even this weekend when you were away and lied, I add? Who told you, his son said. Paul said, you have lived your life in the light. You've made good choices. You've been an easy son to parent, but this weekend you took a step toward the darkness. You can live in the darkness if you want. You can learn to lie and deceive. You can use your friends as a cover. You can step over God's boundaries or you can determine to live in God's light. I'm pleading with you, don't live in the darkness. Live in the light. John couldn't have said it better. And as I turned to to walk away, Paul wrote, I heard his son from behind me saying, Dad, don't go. As I turned around with tears in his eyes, he says, Dad, I want to live in the light, but it's so hard. Will you help me? That's the attitude we're looking for. It's so hard. Will you help me? The church is here to help you. As that young woman came to me way back when I began my ministry and said, I hope you don't regret that I'm here. We'll never regret that you're here. And we want to love and help you know what it means to walk in the light and love of Jesus Christ. For fathers especially on this day, but for all of us, that we would exhibit and model the God of grace and welcome those around us and dismiss the darkness of hate of those who might have offended and hurt me or tripped me up or said something or did something, but that we overcome that with the love of Christ and let Christ lift us into the light like a vine so that His abiding work in our lives can make a difference to others. Let me pray. Help us, Father, as we live out this life that is not always easy. We want to live in the light, but God, we are sometimes drawn to the darkness. And we don't, we don't do well in the darkness, especially if it's a heart of hate, where we hate someone because of what they did or said. Oh God, set people free who are, who are buried, who are imprisoned by hatred. Set them free by abiding in Christ and trusting in Christ, knowing Christ living out the life of Christ in the light of His, of our Christ, that we would abide with you and bear good fruit of loving those, however imperfect they may be, so we draw them back to you. Help us, Father, in that journey. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.